Our first reading this evening is Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 19. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Our second reading is Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. This is God's word. Good evening, let me have my welcome. My name is Matt Fuller, one of the ministers, uh, staff here. Uh, this evening we're in Genesis 3. And uh, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Uh, Father, again, we thank you for recording these events for us at at the beginning of mankind's history. We pray we'd understand quite what took place there in the garden. We'd understand its implications for history. We'd understand what it means for us and how we relate to you and to other people today today. And then we pray we would be changed, transformed by knowing the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. We pray these things to live for him, to the praise of his name. Amen. Amen. Uh, We're in uh, Genesis uh, 1 to 4 then at the moment. We spent a a few weeks looking at God's account of the origins of uh, man. And it doesn't tell you everything. You might want to know, uh, Genesis is a bit like a spotlight. It focuses in on certain things that God wants to highlight. There's lots of things left in the darkness, and sorry about that. But God tells us the things that are important. One thing well worth uh, stressing a- again, though, 
this account we're looking at the moment from 2 verse 3 to 324, this second creation account, is presented in the Bible as history. It may be figuratively portrayed. We can debate whether there was a serpent that actually spoke or whether that is a a figurative way of talking about the work of Satan. But fundamentally, it's a historical event. It's presented in that way. You get to the New Testament, and Jesus Christ refers to these chapters as history. On frequent occasions, the Apostle Paul refers to them as history. I don't know if you noticed, just in that account we had read, or sorry, the, uh, the, uh, the extra we had read from Romans chapter 5. Very clear that there's a parallel drawn in the New Testament between the work of Adam and the work of Jesus Christ. Let me read again to you uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Just what happened with Adam is happening precisely the same with Jesus Christ. Of course, the sin of Adam leads to the condemnation of the whole of mankind. The, the salvation offered in Jesus Christ, that's the salvation of anyone who puts their faith in him. So it's not completely parallel. But essentially, Paul says, if you deny the historicity of these accounts in Genesis 2 and 3, you, are, you may as well deny the historicity of the cross because they're parallel events theologically. So this is history, says Paul, says Jesus in the New Testament. And the last time then, we were looking then at this, I described it as one of the two great turning points of history. If you have the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, those are the two great turning points of history. Nothing compares in significance to those two. And uh, we said last time, primarily Genesis 3, it's not a crime of morality, but a crime of sovereignty. That is, the man and the woman say, well, they do something that's wrong. Yes, that is true. It's a moral crime. But primarily, it's a crime of sovereignty. We will decide what is right and wrong. We don't need you, God, to do that. That's what took place uh, in the first few verses, Genesis 3, 1 to 6. And tonight, then, we look at I guess you could call them the natural consequences in verses 7 to 13 of what took place. So we'll work through it. But 7 to 13, this is just the outflowing naturally of what happens. And then next week, verses 14 to the end of the chapter, that is God's judgment or verdict upon mankind. So it's bleak tonight and it gets even more bleak, okay? So just come back next week. Um, but it's the natural consequences. And essentially what we look at tonight is the breakdown of relationships. Because at the point when Adam and Eve, or indeed you or me, at the point when I insist that I am God, you cannot be. At the point when I insist that I am God, God cannot be. So I've got a problem with him, I've got a problem with you. We do it with groups as well. As soon as we determine that we are in the right, you cannot be. So as soon as there's rebellion against God, as soon as any human being declares themselves sovereign and able to make decisions, there'll always be conflict. There'll always be conflict. And that began in the Garden of Eden. And it's recorded for us here in Genesis chapter 3. 
three things we'll look at tonight. Uh, hopefully they're quite straightforward. Uh, when Adam and Eve, when the first man and the first woman reject God, were there three natural consequences flowing from that? There's shame, there's fear, there's blame. Okay? There's shame, there's fear, there's blame. Very simple. First seven is the first thing. There is shame. Let me pick it up from verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It doesn't explicitly say here there was shame, but I think that the contrast with the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 25, is fairly obvious. So you look at chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. And then here, chapter 3, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open, they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves, essentially to cover their shame. Now, these are not elaborate garments. This is, uh, this is not something for British Fashion Week. Essentially, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word here is belt. They made for themselves a belt or a loincloth. And this is fairly primitive from fig leaves. Why did, why did they do that? Why, why did they do that? I mean, when you and I sin, it's the first thing we do, think, well, quickly, I must get on, go and get some new underwear. It's not, it's not, it's not natural. It's not, what, what? Why is that? What they're doing physically embodies what is going on. So physically, they cover well, the differences between them. They cover the source of, well, they cover the embarrassment that may take place at this point. They cover their, their vulnerability towards one another. So the physical covering up it's just an expression, really, physically, of what is going on more deeply. Emotionally, they are covering themselves up. There is, a now a, there is now a deep unease with who they are that wasn't there before. So I thought quite a lot about shame this week and read lots of things. The, the, the most helpful definition, I thought, was this. Shame is not being able to be comfortable with yourself as you are and therefore not being comfortable in the presence of another. That is shame. I thought it was very helpful. Let me give it to you again. Not being able to be comfortable with yourself as you are, and therefore not being comfortable in the presence of another. That is shame. So because of this first sin, shame entered the world. And the man and the woman were a little uncomfortable at exposing themselves to one another. And so they covered up, they hid, they concealed who they were physically, yes, but that's a manifestation of what's going on. Throughout the the, uh, Old Testament in particular, it's very clear, to be naked is to be exposed, to be undone. If you're a prisoner of war in 2 Samuel or in Isaiah 25, you're naked. You're exposed. It's humiliation. You have nothing to hide. You have no pride left. You're exposed if you're naked. Because once we lose confidence in our relationship with God and his concern for us, 
his approval of us, his love for us, well, then we become a little uncertain who we are. What does it mean to be a human being at that point? And I'm a little bit embarrassed about some things in my life. I'll try and give you an illustration to help. Uh, in our family at the moment, we're considering uh, fostering a baby uh, from birth uh, for uh, a while. Uh, the reason being is this. We've done lots of reading into this whole, whole area. In the first two years of a child's life, they are overwhelmingly their path for life is set by the age they're two. Because a child is meant to have relationships, strong bonds with a primary caregiver, one or a couple more perhaps, primary caregiver. That's entirely normal and natural. And in relating to the primary caregiver, mum, dad, normally of course, um, in relating to them, there is security. That's why, you know, a crying baby, give it back to its mother. (sighs) Doesn't always work, of course. But um, commonly that's the case. Oh, I feel safe now. Children learn to empathize by mirroring the reactions of their parents. So, in a, and, and medically, in the first 12 months of a baby's life, in a healthy baby, the brain will double in weight. For a child that's just in care, social services, it may only go up by 20%. The reason being, in the first year of a child's life in social services, they'll get passed around and have at least three caregivers. So they never form a primary attachment. They never get security. They're never confident of someone loving them, someone being there for them. And the outcome? Well, the outcome is then for the rest of their lives, um, all the evidence points this way, those sort of people are defensive. They're not confident of who they are. They're aggressive. They have a pattern of destructive relationships around them because they're always trying to justify themselves and prove who they are. So, logic being, if you can give that care, that sense of attachment at a young young life, you can set someone up. You can make an enormous difference to a child because within certain boundaries, they're set emotionally by the time they're two years old. Now, what I tell you that. Once Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, lose their attachment to God, they reject him, then who am I? They're uncertain of who they are. And so now they're uncertain how to, they're defensive. They've got things to hide. They now need to prove themselves to one another. There will be competition between them. No longer can they be transparent and unashamed. They hide, they conceal, they cover up. That all came from the first sin. Shame enters the world. But of course, that's not hard to see today. In today's day and age, we people are defensive, self-centered, and it comes from, well, I need to protect myself. I need to push out a little bit at who you are. So we conceal things. We hide. We do it physically. People wear things, something called concealer. I'm not quite sure what it is. I, I understand it's quite important to some women. The um, concealer. But we all have things about us that we prefer to hide. The, 
the hairy back, the ugly wart, the nasty spot. We all have things physically that we, you know, we're, we're a bit embarrassed when they come out. You know, we can wear a bikini, but only if it comes at this sort of angle, because we don't want people to see that, or whatever it may be. We hide. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. This is because... we, we hide. We conceal things, because we're just a little bit embarrassed. And what will you think of me if you see what I look like? I lack... Will you still like me? Will you still think I'm beautiful if I conceal this wart upon my chin or whatever? No, I don't know. Upon my back, whatever it may be. Of course, that's just superficial. Who cares about their appearance? Um, Because emotionally, that's what we do as well. Emotionally, we conceal. So we're a bit ashamed about one or two things we've done in the past. And so we, we don't tell anyone about them. They're marriages, people married, they don't quite tell their spouses everything about the past because they're ashamed. But what does that do? Well, it's ruining honest relationships. You can't have an honest relationship if there's shame and things which are unconfessed. Or it may just be a more, a more day-to-day mundane level. You know, this is what I'm thinking, but I can't say it out loud because what if... What if you think I'm silly? You might just think I'm silly if I say this out loud. So I I don't offer my opinion. I don't tell you what I think. And so there's a lack of honesty in relationship because we've lost confidence in who we are as children of God. Shame has entered the world. We keep people at arm's length, not willing to expose ourselves. Shame. That's what shame is. Shame is uncomfortable with ourselves and therefore uncomfortable to be exposed. It began then. Not meant to be like that. It's not how God has made us to be. It began then, back in the garden. It's gone on ever since. There's shame. Second thing, verses 8 to 11, there's fear. There is now also fear enters the world. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? I heard you and I was afraid. Or in one sense, the tragedy can be summed up in this. They heard and they hid. They heard the Lord God and they hid. It's not meant to be that way. It's meant to be delight. The Lord God, then he's walking. It's not just that God goes out for an evening stroll every night, stretch his legs, walk the dog. Um, The the idiom is, uh, the Hebrew idiom of walking means friendship. He went to walk in the garden. He went to have friendship. So throughout the book of Proverbs, it's very obvious. Don't walk with the wicked. Do walk with the righteous. Have them as your friends. It's it's an idiom for friendship. So in the new 21st century London uh, translation, it would be something like, God went to hang out with his people. He's gone to because they're his people to have relationship uh, with him. They heard him, but they hid. They hid from God. No, they didn't. You can't hide from God. You can try. I mean, they hid behind the leaves from one another. They're hiding behind the trees to get away from God. But you can't hide, really, from God. He sees everything. He knows 
everything. You don't hide from him. God asks them all these questions in verse 9 to 11, not because he doesn't know. He knows what they've done. He's omniscient. He is all-knowing. But he asks them these questions to, well, because he's kind. He's giving them an opportunity to confess. I know what you've done. Tell me what you've done. But they don't. They don't. And once says God is like any good parent giving his child, encouraging his children to confess. I mean, see a little thing. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I'd gone to bed. I was the last one to go to bed in our house, and all was well. I got up in the morning at uh, 7 o'clock. My uh, six-year-old was in the lounge. There was a load of biro on the sofa. Now, you didn't need to be Hercule Poirot to work out who, the, who was guilty in that scenario. I was the last one there. All was well in the morning, uh, pen all over the place. So what do you, you get down and say, eye to eye, be honest, do you know how that pen got there? Of course, calculation goes on at that point. <laughs> God is saying to them, I know what you've done. What have you done? God kindly gives them an opportunity to confess, to be honest. But Adam, well, he avoids the issue. So Adam says, verse 10, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. That's not what you should be saying, Adam. Adam should be saying, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I disobeyed you. He's sort of being naked. Adam, that's secondary. You've disobeyed God. He's avoiding the issue. Even then, in, um, God asks him straight in verse 11, have you eaten from the tree? And still he's slightly evasive. We'll come to that in a moment, verse 12. God graciously gives them the opportunity to confess, but there is no confession. They try to hide, try to evade. Adam tries to hide from his judge. He tries to to escape his judge. You can't do that. You can't hide from God. The man couldn't. We can't. The writer to the Hebrews uh, puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Let me read it to you, 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account can't hide from God. You see, you've got different things going on here. When they're relating to one another, there's, uh, for the man and woman, there's, there's a discomfort with who they are. Uh, there's a subjective feeling of guilt. And that is true. But more significant is the fact that objectively, they are guilty of rejecting God and declaring themselves as lords and kings. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes we might feel subjectively guilty. We've done nothing wrong. Often people will have no subjective sense of guilt when actually they've rejected God as their creator, and they should do. Because we are naturally guilty. We can't hide from God. It's impossible to do. If you entered a courtroom and you knew the judge is absolutely perfect, perfectly righteous, incredibly shrewd, he has sat in front of him incontrovertible proof that you are guilty. You should fear. 
you should fear the sentence. But only if you're guilty. See, fear of God didn't exist before sin. It's not meant to be that way again. But fear of God enters the world when we reject him. And for an unforgiven sinner, fear of God is entirely appropriate because he is a judge and he will judge us for our rejection of him. But that fear, it enters at the full. So there's shame, there's fear, lastly. There's blame, verses 12 and 13. Or perhaps more accurately, there's displacement of blame. Verse 12. Let's pick it up from verse 11 to get the flow. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, yes. No, he didn't. <laughs> the man said, the woman. The woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There's blame. I thought this was a great quote I read this week. Henri Blocher, there are few more clear symptoms of persistence in sin than the accusing quest for excuses. There are few more clear symptoms of persistence in sin than the accusing quest for excuses. Do you see what he's saying? It's an obvious mark of our sinfulness that we blame other people constantly have to find someone else to blame for our mistakes rather than saying it was me. I thought it was a very strong quote. Let me uh, um, push this in two different directions that I think the text uh, would, would want us to go. First then, let's look at Adam's excuses in particular, then we look at the general pattern. Let me just look at Adam's excuses and forgive me for about three or four minutes, I'm primarily here addressing the men. Let's look at Adam's excuses. You get a shift in verse 8. Uh, verses 1 to 7, that really is the dialogue is between the serpent and Eve. Uh, verse 8, from this point onwards, the, the man is the center of the action. So in verse 8, it is literally, then they heard, and the man hid himself along with his wife. So the primary focus is on the man. When you get to the questions, uh, verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Singular. Verse 11. Who told you that you, singular, were naked? God is saying, hey, man, Adam, it's you I need a conversation with. Leave her out of it for now. I need to speak to you. Because part of what's gone on here is an avoidance or a shame, a blame shifting from Adam. It's easy to read Genesis 3 and to think, well, what's, come on, it was Eve's fault. I mean, when Adam says, you know, you could be sympathetic at that point because she's presented as the one who primarily engages in uh, the discussion with uh, the serpent or Satan. She's the one who's presented as doing that. Adam certainly says, uh, her. But God's having none of that. And biblically, that's not the way God has made us. God says, Adam, you. You are responsible for what's gone on here. Do you remember what we look at this back in uh, chapter 2? 
But um, God, in Genesis chapter 2, God made Adam the head of mankind. The covenant head, if you want to use that language, but the one who is responsible. So back in chapter 2, verse 15, before woman's even on the scene. Do you remember this? Chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of it, you'll die. His relationship was established with the man primarily. The commandments were given to the man and then the woman was brought on. And so even back in chapter 3, verse 6, the biblical expectation is when Adam and Eve are there, Eve, the woman, sees the fruit of the tree, sees it's good for food, etc. She took it, ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it. Adam should have said, no, Eve. No, you and I are not going to do that. That was his responsibility. He, according to God, is responsible for the woman's sin at that moment in time. Now, actually, next week, we're going to unpack um, a bit more of what that means and when God, we see God's response, what that means for male and female rela- uh, relationship and how they're cursed, uh, in one sense, by God. But just suffice for now to say... Husbands, primarily I'm now talking to. Husbands, biblically, you have ultimate responsibility for the godliness of your wives. Now, don't get too carried away down that line. It's not to say that every husband is responsible for every sin a wife does. That's a bit silly. If a wife has an extramarital affair, that is her responsibility, not the man's for the action, although he may be involved. But what's gone on here is collusion. That's what's gone on in chapter 3, verse 6. The man is meant to have taken the initiative in praying together, addressing patterns of sin together, not colluding in the sin. And chapter 3, verse 6, Adam says, yeah, go on then, go on then. He colludes in a sin with a woman. And husbands, don't do that. Husbands, you have primary responsibility for the godliness of your wives. So you mustn't collude in sin. Far easier to do that. Much more effort to say no. Far easier to collude in sin, whatever it may be. Whether it be a critical spirit and you just, you know, the both of you spur one another on to criticize that family and that individual and that person and that church or whatever it may be. Just criticism or perhaps a, you spur one another on in materialism, just the obsessive you know, accumulation of stuff, and you never challenge one another because it's just quite convenient. Husbands, you're primarily responsible for that, according to the Scriptures. Adam colludes in his sin. She takes the initiative, yes, of course, but Adam colludes and God says, you are to blame. I made you responsible for her, And you have failed. Husbands, we're responsible. Wives, pray for your husbands. Pray for us. Because it's very easy to be lazy. And we may observe, I mean, who wants to challenge sin? You don't want to do it in your own life. You don't want to do it in someone else's life. You don't want to do it in your spouse's life. Because inevitably that's a little bit painful and probably end up in a bit of a row of some kind. You don't want to do that. It's much easier to say, oh, stuff it. I know we probably shouldn't do this, but... Oh, it's just, you know, pray for us. 
Pray for husbands. So there's that issue going on. God says, Adam, you, 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 I'm talking to. But then there's just the general pattern of displacement of blame, of justifying our actions. We justify our actions by blaming other people or other groups. We do it all the time. All the time. In fact, we make an entertainment industry out of it. Last, I was on holiday last week, and uh, perhaps surprisingly, for the first time ever, I watched an episode of The Apprentice. I'd seen bits of it, but I watched an episode from beginning to end of The Apprentice. It's The Youth Apprentice. Apparently, that's not as good, but I still found it. Okay, well, okay, don't, I didn't make it. <laughs> um, vigorous shaking of heads. Uh, apparently, it's not quite as Okay, fine, fine, fine. But I, st- I, I watched this and thought, okay, I get it. I get it why people find this appealing and vaguely addictive. Uh, it's quite a compelling TV. I quite enjoyed it. Uh, and um, anyway, there we go. Because what happens in The Apprentice, you get to the last, whatever, 10 minutes or so, and apparently this happens all the time. Three people then come into the boardroom, and what are they doing? Whoever it is. Harry, you're the team leader. You bogged it. Why? Well, Sir Alan, his fault. And his fault. Neither of them listened to me. Okay, you, Giles, I don't know their name. Giles, you came up with no good ideas, did you? He crushed me, and he didn't listen to my ideas. So, I mean, it's, it's entertainment. The professionalized entertainment of shifting blame. And in one sense, you would, would uh, I mean, not directly, but subtly, we're being encouraged to do that. You want to be successful in business? Blame him, blame her. Don't take the blame. Don't be the one left holding the... I'm going to run out of metaphor here, aren't I? <laughs> Bomb when it explodes. I think that's what I meant. I, was, I had to pass the parcel image, but you do want, anyway, stuff like that. <laughs> Don't take the blame. Just push it onto someone else. We're encouraged to do that. Just blame someone else. So we do it all the time. So we do do it at work. You fail to, whatever, you fail to send a certain email that's quite important, a mundane example. You haven't sent that email. I'm sorry, I thought Peter would do that. Did you tell him to? <laughs> I'm sure I did. Probably. You just blame. Push blame off. Or at home. We have a row with, our, with a flatmate or a spouse or a relative at home. And um, it's all quite agitated and het up. And actually, you know you've been a little bit feisty. And they come to you and say, you know, oh, you know, why, did you, why have you been so angry with me? I say, wow, you're, you're, you, know, you are under a lot of stress at the moment. You are getting agitated. You get upset very easily at the moment. Is it, you know, are you a little hormonal at the moment? You just push the blame. Push the blame. You know, you are guilty, but you just, probably your fault really, isn't it? If you're honest with yourself. And sometimes you get away with it and they think, oh, well, maybe... I was a little defensive. Or perhaps most common at all. It's not just at work or at home. It's just in our heads. We have, a, we have some disagreement with someone, someone we think, and then in our heads, our own little personal editing suite goes to work. And before we know it, you know, five minutes later, yes, yes, in that conversation, I was, I was measured 
and polite and utterly reasonable. And they were the one who was shouting and angry and aggressive. And it bears very little relation to the truth, but you've just done a little bit of editing in your own mind. And so you think to yourself, I'm fine. I've behaved really well. I'm righteous here. And that person, they take all the blame. It began here. It began in the garden. The shifting of blame. Happens with groups as well. You can do it on a corporate level. You say to yourself, the problem with this city is the bankers. It's all their fault. The problem with this city is the idle protesters doing absolutely nothing. The problem with this situation is the politicians. Someone said to me this morning, if the politicians just got out of the way of us bankers, we'd put things straight again. The problem's always someone else. The problem's always someone else. You can do it all sorts of individually or corporately. But that quote again, Henri Blocher, there are few more clear symptoms of persistence in sin than the accusing quest for excuses. Brilliant. So it's a fairly miserable scenario. Shame, fear, blame enter the world as a result of this first sin. And we haven't even got on to God's response, his judgment upon the first man and the first woman and the serpent and the, and the planet. We haven't even got on to that. Miserable. And yet already, there are hints of mercy. Even at this stage, there are hints of mercy of what God would do. So, uh, but back in that verse 8, they heard God, they hid from God, but, verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? God knew what they'd done. God knew why they were hiding. But the Lord said, I'm calling for you. I'm coming for you. I'm giving you a chance here to confess your sin to me. What are you? I've come for you, even in your state of rebellion. That's just a, it's just a little picture at this stage. But that is the trajectory for the whole of the scriptures. God always takes the initiative in salvation. He's the one who always comes and says, I'm offering you mercy. Will you receive it? Ultimately, of course, he comes himself in Jesus Christ, dies on a cross and says, I've taken the initiative for you. God comes. Just a hint of mercy at this stage. And let me just borrow one verse from uh, next week. If you just turn over to verse 21 of chapter 3. So next week we look at the curse. There there are many more hints of God's mercy. But let's just look at chapter 3, verse 21 for now. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Okay. I think presumably he doesn't need a a sewing machine. But where where has God got this skin from? Obviously he's had to kill an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. And cover their nakedness. And then you see that's a picture that's picked up throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Animals die as a substitute for the sin of humans. They die in their place so that humans can be forgiven. You get to the New Testament. And as we had in, heard read in Romans 5. Jesus Christ dies upon a cross takes his sin upon, sorry, takes our sin upon himself 
so that we might receive his righteousness and be clothed in it. His perfection. So perhaps most explicitly of all, he'll say in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, I command you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. That's picture language, of course. He's not literally saying, come and buy. He's saying, Jesus is saying, come and receive from me my garment of righteousness that will cover the fact that you are naked, you are ashamed, you are guilty. You need to be clothed in my perfection. And that changes everything. And we can't unpack that tonight, but let me, let me just point you in that direction. It changes absolutely everything. Look, how do we break out of the cycle of this accusing quest of making excuses, of blaming everyone else and never accepting responsibility for ourselves? How do we put our hand in the air and say, my fault? How do we do that? Well, when we're no longer ashamed, when we have nothing left to hide, when we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which means we know we're forgiven, we know God accepts us, we know again attachment to him. We know again what it is to have security in him. Then that changes us. No longer ashamed. When you know you're clothed by Jesus Christ, it gives you security, confidence in who you are. You can go out into the world not ashamed. When you know you're forgiven by God because of the work of Jesus Christ, you don't fear him, you love him. When you know that your guilt has been paid for by Jesus Christ, you don't have to blame other people. You can put your hand up and say, I did it. You know, um, as a parent, my six-year-old, he's drawn on biro in the sofa. Okay. Do you know how that biro got there? Of course, the calculation goes on his head. What if I say yes? What if I say no? Because what every parent wants of their child at that moment is to say, yes. I mean, they're not going to come out with anything quite so eloquent. But you want them essentially to say, yes, I did it. I did it. I know I'm guilty. And I'm sorry. But I can tell you this because I don't fear you, Daddy. I am confident of your love for me. Oh, I know there may be some little bit of discipline here and now in this next five minutes, but I know even that will be for my good. And it is, I am absolutely certain of your love for me, that you will not reject me. Therefore, I can confess my sin. But obviously, all my children behave in that sort of way and um, are freely mature. And uh, No, a six-year-old doesn't do that. We don't do that. But... When you know profoundly in your head and in your heart that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that God looks down upon you, you don't fear his judgment, even though he knows the worst sins of your heart. You know he loves you because Jesus has died for your sin. Jesus has given you his righteousness. When you know that, you can say, yeah, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. It wasn't her. It wasn't him. It wasn't the snake. It was me but I don't fear you. I'm not ashamed because I'm confident I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me lead us in prayer together.
Father, again, as we've looked at the fallout from that first great turning point of world history, that horrific turning point that was uh, the fall of man and woman, that uh, a first sin in the Garden of Eden. And we see there what happens to them in their relationship. Shame, fear of you, blaming other people. We see that there are echoes and ripples of that have spread out through the whole of history. And we are the same. We are now caught up in cycles of shame and fearing you and blaming other people for our mistakes. Father, please would you help us understand more of what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, to have our sins forgiven, to know clearly that you love us and delight in us because we wear his perfection. Would that transform our relationship to you? Would we relate to you not from fear, but with absolute delight and freedom? Would it enable us to not hide ourselves from other people, but to be transparent in our relationships because we know that we are loved by you Drive these things deep into us, we pray. Amen.